Hey friends, good to see you today. Let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, lovely to see you Jan Reese amongst us today. So uh, Pastor Brian had a lot to say about missions. I know that takes some time to absorb and encourage you to do pick up one of these so you can see who the missionaries are that we support. Thank you, Brian, for that. Uh, one thing specifically we're contributing towards is the church planners in uh, India that we, uh, who, the ministry that through them we support. Um, they try to hold a Christmas celebration every year in their village. And the cost of doing that is $50. So the amount some of you spend on lunch today could be directed towards India and you could provide a Christmas celebration while they're, well, where they will hear the gospel message for a measly 50 bucks. It's quite something. And uh, all that will go through the missions fund. You could provide Christmas for every kid in the children's home that Matthew and Krista run for $200. Now, I'm not saying you should cough it up, but I'm just saying how, how affordable that is to us Americans. $50, really, for a, a remote village in India to hear uh, the gospel through a, a Christmas celebration hosted by a church planner over there. It's really amazing. So give that some thought and uh, read about our, the missionaries we support in that flyer. Again, thanks, Brian, for making that announcement for us. Uh, let me turn your attention again this morning to Psalm, uh, Psalm Isaiah 42, uh, verses 1 through 9 are referred to as a servant song, uh, not because it's necessarily sung, but because it is poetry, Hebrew poetry, and it's about the servant of the Lord, who uh, we know from the New Testament is identified specifically as Jesus Christ. In most cases, that's true when a servant is referred to. Sometimes it's Israel, but in this case, it is Jesus Christ specifically that Isaiah is pointing to. Uh, of course, written centuries before Christ appeared on the scene uh, physically, um, uh, a prophecy uh, by the prophet Isaiah. So we want to look again in this portion, and I'm just going to read the first four verses as we start today. Uh, Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. This is God's inerrant word. May he uh, give his blessing to what we've read and let's ask for his help now as we look into this. Uh, without your spirit, Heavenly Father, uh, these will be merely words. Um, without giving us ears that hear and eyes that see, uh, this uh, next time ahead will be pointless. 
And that's not why we came today. We came to hear from you. We came to hear your word. We came to hear about Christ. And I pray your spirit would quicken us and help us to see him, uh, that we would hear him. May what your body hears through me be your voice, uh, your words. And I pray that you would set me aside now that they could hear from you, Heavenly Father. Uh, Jesus, be glorified among us today. And we commit our time now to you and praise Savior in your precious name. Amen. Let me locate my clicker. Here it is. This is an old picture of Billy Graham, uh, named as one of the most influential Christian leaders of the 20th century. I know some of you uh, in high school and below don't know who this man is, but he was at one time in America a household name because of his evangelistic crusades. He also uh, broadcast his messages on the radio, did that, uh, uh, ministered, uh, uh, spent a great deal of time in Germany immediately after World War II, uh, after Germany was laid waste because of the war. Uh, Graham focused much of his attention into Germany. Um, a longtime associate of Billy Graham talks about the time when he was preaching a radio broadcast, preaching a sermon on the radio to Germany. He... Uh, of course, preached through an interpreter, a ministry friend of his named Peter Schneider. And the broadcast seemed to go flawlessly from everybody at the station, but still a woman in Cologne, Germany, wrote in and uh, registered her complaint uh, with the service, uh, with, with the message. She said that she was impressed with Billy Graham's power and authority, but there was only one thing wrong. There was a man speaking English who kept interrupting him. <laughs> Think about that this afternoon and you'll... It was Billy Graham <laughs> himself. As far as interruptions go, that's uh, not much of one compared to one of the greatest interruptions in all of history. And I'm referring, of course, to the birth of Jesus Christ. Consider these interrupting aspects of Christ's birth. For the shepherds, a quiet evening in the field watching their flock was dramatically interrupted by an angel of the Lord. Uh, and the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Consider the carpenter Joseph enjoying a normal betrothal to the woman he loved shockingly interrupted by signs that Mary was pregnant and that he was not the father. Gabriel appeared to Joseph uh, with these words, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. But perhaps the biggest interruption of all around the birth of Christ was for Mary, whose Life, her whole life was interrupted by yet another announcement from Gabriel. You're familiar with this one. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. 
The startling, interrupting nature of Christ's birth is seen on these three occasions with that word I've capitalized for you, that, that interrupting little word, behold. It's called an interjection, grammatically speaking. It's how you uh, introduce something disrupting. Uh, behold announces something you weren't expecting. Look at this, Mary. You're pregnant with the Son of God. Look at this, Joseph. The father of Mary's child is the Holy Spirit. Look at this, men. Your Savior has been born in Bethlehem. And I want to ask you the question, could it be that the Lord has something similar in mind for you this Advent season? In these weeks leading up to Christmas, could he be attempting to interrupt you? Is he trying to get your mind off your usual preparations for Christmas, your usual pursuit of satisfaction in the things of the world, your usual frantic search for the perfect gift for someone? This is definitely what the Lord is doing through Isaiah uh, into Israel's routine of bowing down to false gods and life is normal. The Lord brings an interruption his interruption is, is an alternative to the routine of idol worship. Look at how he begins verse 1. Behold my servant. There's that interrupting little word again. Kind of gets under your skin. That disrupting word that stops us in our tracks and grabs our attention. Look at this, God says. Look at my servant. Look at how far superior he is to your idols. Look at how much greater he is uh, to any figurine you've ever bowed down to. Look at this alternative to your puny false gods. Behold my servant. And in these verses what we see Isaiah doing is painting a, a prophetic portrait of the servant of the Lord. He gives in detail a picture of this alternative to idols. As he gives us a, a portrait of Jesus in, in glorious detail. Uh, I mentioned last week that there are two parts to the ministry of the servant. And we saw one of these last Sunday morning, his mission. Uh, this is what we see in verse 1 here. Isaiah describes seven distinct qualities of the servant of the Lord that we went through last Sunday. He's distinct from the false gods that Israel was prone to worship. He's a servant, obedient to the Father, and every, ta every task given to him. He's upheld by the Father who sustained him in his role, chosen by the Father for this role, a delight in all things to the Father, filled with God's Spirit who, who enables him as the servant of the Lord. And, and finally, uh, he's a messenger of divine revelation, bringing the word of God to the Gentiles. We, we looked at this at length last Sunday, and, and it's a wonderful description of the ministry of the servant. How is he going to carry this out? It sounds fantastic, but frankly, Israel's used to foreign kings who had come into their land and inserted themselves into their 
political life, their uh, social life, their, their economic life, even their spiritual life. And quite often they inserted themselves with brute force. And so is this servant, this ruler, Isaiah, is he going to be any different? That's what Isaiah goes at length to describe in verses 2 through 4. Uh, in these verses, we'll see him move on from the mission of the servant to how he carries it out, his manner. And as Isaiah explains how the servant would carry his mission out, how he would fulfill his earthly ministry, he mentions three areas about how he would carry this out. And the first area that he describes to us on another slide is his speech. Uh, the speech of God's servant, quite remarkably, would be different than other rulers. The servant of the Lord will be quiet and unaggressive. Look at how Isaiah describes him in verse 2. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Uh, there are three phrases in this uh, verse. He begins with, he will not cry aloud or, or he will not shout uh, this Hebrew verb is sometimes used to describe a thunderclap or the roar of a bull. Jesus didn't come yelling or shouting orders the way an army drill sergeant often does. Christ did not come with a disposition of a military commander. If you know who George, uh, George S. Patton was in World War II, Christ was not another Patton. Come to come to bully around his maggot followers, his disciples. Some of them were close to maggots, actually. And verse 2 goes on to give us another phrase, or lift up his voice. That continues the idea of the first. He did not come to shout others down. Of course, he lifted his voice at times to make himself heard. The Sermon on the Mount was preached in the open air. He had to project. But he didn't do that with an angry disposition. He was not yelling at the crowd assembled to hear uh, him. Much of his teaching, you remember, was aimed at his disciples. And that was uh, primarily done by quiet instruction. And finally, this third phrase that kind of wraps up this idea uh, comes there, or make it heard in the street. Uh, his voice, that is. And this verb refers to the tone of a herald or a town crier who would uh, come into a village and make a proclamation in the name of the king. Hear ye, hear ye! That kind of thing. Now, Jesus did proclaim the truth God's revelation, but not in an aggressive way so as to draw attention uh, to himself the way a town crier would. Each of these phrases kind of builds on top of each other. They snowball and give us the sense that the servant of the Lord comes with a quiet and unaggressive bearing. And if you've read the New Testament at all, you know that this perfectly describes Christ. But consider how different this would have been to 
Uh, Isaiah's readers, this kind of ruler is not something they're used to. The, again, they were used to foreign kings who threatened and, and dominated them. And, and some of them, some of those forces that occupied them, constantly rebuking and demoralizing uh, those they had conquered. The servant of the Lord will be astonishingly, astonishingly different. Uh, a stark contrast to this man in particular, Cyrus the Great, who's mentioned in these chapters around 42. He was the king of the Persian Empire, and his vast empire at that time in history would have been the largest in the world. Uh, he's mentioned in chapter 41, uh, and he's described uh, in a way that He's described as steamrolling every nation that stands before him. 41 begins, listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step. He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He, he makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths. His feet have not trod. He's so swift and victorious. It's as if, it's as if he's not even touching the ground. And then in verse 45 again, later, Cyrus is mentioned by name. 41 was about Cyrus, though not named, but here he is named. 45 begins, thus says the Lord who is anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. Not so the servant of the Lord who would not be a steamroller but whose manner would be quiet and unaggressive. Listen to how the New Testament writers describe him. Uh, from, first from um, a portion of our scripture reading in Philippians. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Think of the humility of Christ as he, the, the agent of creation, actually confines himself to, to the womb of Mary for nine months. Peter describes Christ in this same way. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. 
He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued him trusting himself to him who judges justly. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23. And then this is kind of the coup de grace of New Testament cross-references, one you're very familiar with, uh, that Christ fulfilled. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Christ perfectly fulfilled this description of the servant. He was quiet and unaggressive. Now, a great many people don't believe that Jesus actually sounds like that. And maybe you do, maybe you don't either. The tone they attribute to Christ isn't Christ's, but it's the angry tone of their parents' voice. Or it's the belittling and demeaning voice of a teacher or drill sergeant. I remember Mr. LaFrancis in the sixth grade who did call us maggots, if, I'm, if I remember correctly. That voice in your head, I'm not saying you're crazy, but that voice in your head that you hear telling yourself, you are a nimrod, I can't believe you did that. What an idiot. You wouldn't call other people that, but you call yourself that maybe all the time. And many times we, we come to think that that voice is how Christ is talking to us. Not trying to psychoanalyze you or hear or anything like that. But, you know, I hear my mother's voice in my head all the time. I went outside in the cold weather this week with wet hair. <laughs> Can you relate to that? Because going out with wet hair gives you a cold, right? So much for germ theory and all that stuff, but that was the gospel in my house growing up. And I'm, that's a little facetious, of course, but it, it could get a lot worse. Christ doesn't talk to you that way. His, listen to Spurgeon describe it. Christ Jesus has no quarrel with his spouse, that is, his bride, that is, you all. She often wanders from him and grieves his Holy Spirit, but he does not allow her faults to affect his love. He sometimes rebukes but it is always in a tender manner with the kindest of intentions. That's how Christ speaks to his bride, the church. Of course, he has a much different tone of voice for the stiff-necked and hard-hearted person, but he does not speak to his bride with that tone of voice. As Spurgeon said, he speaks to his bride in a tender manner with the kindest of intentions. And, oh, so different from the rulers that they were used to and, 
and Cyrus the Great in particular, Isaiah describes how the servant of the Lord would carry out his earthly mission. And the first area that he details is his speech. And he's not going to come to you like a drill sergeant or, or, a, or a gym teacher or your parents at a really bad moment. His speech will be quiet and unaggressive. And then Isaiah moves on from his speech to another area, and that second area is his mercy. The servant of the Lord would fulfill his role with grace and compassion. Look at verse 3 with me. It says, a bruised reed he will not break. A reed refers to the tall grass that grew uh, in marshes and near riverbanks in Israel and Egypt. Uh, one variety of the reed could grow up to three feet tall, and it was sometimes dried and used as a measuring stick, a, a early version of the yardstick, if you will. Um, but these reeds were also hollow, and they could easily break if too much pressure uh, or weight was applied to them. In fact, the Lord uses that very image to describe how unreliable Egypt is to Israel. He, he says, Behold, you are trusting now in Egypt that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. So a bruised reed is as a reference to someone who's been damaged, someone who's been crushed, or as Richard Sibbs defined it in his great little book called The Bruised Reed. He said, the bruised reed is a man that for the most part is in some misery, a poor, distressed man. And Sibbs describes how that bruising is necessary before we come to know Christ uh, to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we'll cry out for mercy. And he adds that that bruising is needed after we've come to faith because of the pride that remains in our sinful nature. And so maybe you'd consider yourself a bruised reed this morning. You've been damaged or crushed or distressed by something in life. What hope is there for you in the servant of the Lord? Look what it says, a bruised reed he will not break. Jesus, the servant of the Lord, will not break you in pieces. And by making this negative statement, he will not break, he means, of course, the positive he will not break you. On the contrary, he will mend your brokenness. He will heal what has been damaged. Look at how the verse now goes further. In a faintly burning wick, he will not quench. A faintly burning wick or smoldering wick is what you see right after you blow out a candle that that orange dot on top of the wick is what we're referring to here. Um, the faintly burning wick describes broken men whose hope is extinguished. 
There's no fuel to keep their candle burning. And in my house, sometimes we don't want the smoke from the wick to, to fill up the room. And so we lick our fingers and we extinguish it all the way. And it's just Christ will not do that. He will not snuff you out. He will never do that. A faintly burning wick, he will not quench. Again, this, this too means the opposite. He will fan that wick back into flame. Jesus will provide the fuel to keep the fire burning, to keep that person going. And, and how? Boy, isn't that the question. How is he going to do this? How is he going to mend that damaged reed and, and fan it, that broken, uh, uh, faintly burning wick into flame? And I think the last phrase reveals how of the how of this. It says, he will faithfully bring forth justice. Remember that justice, as we noticed the same word up in verse 1 last week, um, this is a, is a reference to the word, the judgment, the, the statement given by the king, the king's truth, what the king says is true. And so what it, what it refers to is the word of God, uh, revelation, divine revelation. And so this means that the servant uses, the means that the servant uses to heal someone who's crushed is, is God's word. And the tool that the servant uses to fan the flame of the hopeless person is his word. And this very same means, this very same tool, this is, the, this is what the writer of Psalm 119 pleads for. We hear him say in verse 25, my soul clings to the dust. Now, what do you think that refers to? That's a person, pretty much as it describes, on his face. He is, he is laid low. His soul, at least, is. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life, look at the words, according to your word. In keeping with your word. And then later in the same psalm, I am severely afflicted. I am nearly extinguished. I'm a bruised reed. And look at the means. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. The word is what, his word is what Christ uses to mend our broken souls and heal us. Oh, this is such an important truth that when we feel crushed and when we feel about to burn out, I know sometimes our tendency is to stay away from the fellowship of the saints. But you are avoiding one of the very means God uses to mend you when you do that. When you withdraw and say, I don't want to see anybody, and I get that. You remove yourself from his means of grace. 
course, he means this personally on a daily basis as well. He establishes, faithfully brings forth justice or divine revelation or the word of God. Matthew tells us that this is exactly what Christ did. In fact, Matthew just quotes this passage. As Jesus is healing the, the people who, who are coming to him, those who are sick and damaged, Matthew quotes these very words to, to show that Christ did this. Matthew says, it's going to sound familiar, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles hope. Matthew just underscores this passage and says this is what Christ did. I think that there can be times when you and I believe like a bruised reed or a faintly burning wick that we've sinned once too often. You know, and you tell yourself, you know, I know you've sinned before, but man... This time, you just, you just blew it. You, I mean, there's no going back from here. You, you have sinned beyond Christ's capacity to forgive you. Now, did you hear that lie? But you've heard it, haven't you? You, friend, have crossed a line here, and there is no way... Deep down, I mean, after all, he's, he's basically been tolerating you for all this time. And, you know, this latest failure of yours is, is the straw that broke the camel's back. Nuh-uh. That's, that's a lie. And as we hear him, his mercy described towards sinful people like, like me and like you, we know that he would never say this. Listen to Pastor Dane Ortland describe the mercy of Christ towards sinners. This is a really good quote. Fallen anxious sinners are limitless in their capacity to perceive reasons for Jesus to cast them out. We are factories of fresh resistances to Christ's love. Even when we run out of tangible reasons to be cast out, such as specific sins or failures, we tend to retain a vague sense that given enough time, Jesus will finally grow tired of us and hold us at arm's length. We cannot present a reason for Christ to finally close off his heart to his own sheep. No such reason exists. Every human friend has a limit. If we offend enough, if a relationship gets damaged enough, if we betray enough times, we are cast out. The walls go up. With Christ, our sins and weaknesses are the very resume items that qualify us to approach Him. 
Nothing but coming to him is required first at conversion and a thousand times thereafter until we are with him upon death. Ah, such a good quote. So, uh, to begin with, if you're here today without Christ and you've never turned to him and surrendered your life to him and trusted in him and his atoning death and uh, uh, put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior, then you need to hear that you, you cannot sin greater than his mercy is. And today, today, he is extending an invitation to you. And he says, my friend, sinner, come to me. Trust in my atoning death on the cross. Surrender your life to me. Turn your back on those things you've been following. And turn to me and you will see, receive my free gift of forgiveness and eternal life. Don't miss the part about turning your back on what you've been engaged in. And then turning a different direction. That's called what the Bible refers to as repentance. And we turn away from that and we turn to Christ. So... It stands before you today and all you have to do is say, Christ Jesus, I give you my life and I'm trusting in you right now. Make me your child and cleanse me. And then if many of you have already done that, I know, and but you're here, here today and boy, you did something last night. How can you sit in church today? How can you be here and having done what you did last night? Man, if they found out, and Christ says to you, come to me. He says to you, I'm not here to snuff you out. I'm here to fan the flame of your love for me back into, back into a, a fire. And so if you've done something last night, he's extending the same invitation to you. Child, come back. Turn away from it. Turn your back on it. I won't shatter a bruised reed. I won't snuff out a wick. Well, this is his, his mercy that Isaiah describes. And wow, it sounds a lot better than Cyrus the Great, I'm thinking already, right? Wow. His speech, he will sound different. His manner will be so radically different than the, that of foreign kings. But will he, will he be able to pull it off? I mean, it gets right down to it. And that's lastly what Isaiah directs us to. Can he be this for us? And so he, he talks about his might. And the answer is the servant, yes, will absolutely be able to do this. And there's nothing that can stop him. 
look at verse 4 with me. He will not grow faint or discouraged or be discouraged. Now those are the same two words that we've just looked at. He will not grow faint. He will not grow faint like a smoldering wick. It's the same word from verse 3, the last phrase. He, he won't flicker out or be discouraged. That's the same as, as uh, the word bruised up in verse 3. He's not easily damaged. He's not bruised. He won't be crushed. The servant of the Lord, he, while he takes on our humanity and experiences the same things we do, while he experiences the things that crush us and quench our flame, they won't crush him and they won't cause him to flicker out. On the contrary, this servant will succeed, as verse 4 continues to say, till he has established justice in the earth. Again, justice, you've got to understand that's a reference to a divinely revealed truth, the, the, the judgment passed down from the king, uh, the word of God. And here Isaiah says, look at the word, until he has established justice, till he has set it in place, till he has enacted God's truth. The servant will set God's word before the nations of the earth. And this, of course, is still taking place. Ultimately, takes place through the teaching ministry of his apostles and those who teach what his apostles said. It's going on even now. Till it's been established. His word has been established in the earth. Will he succeed? Yes. And, you know, we're not Jewish people, but several of Isaiah's readers would have read this, and they would have read that phrase, till he has established justice, or till he has set before them the word, and they would say, that sounds like Moses. Because that's what it says Moses did. And do you remember how Moses said, a prophet like me will come after me? Uh, that a prophet would come in the future like me? Deuteronomy 4.44, using the same word, established, says that this is the law that Moses has set before the people or established before the people. And you might not be getting all this, but this indicates that the servant of the Lord will be that new Moses that Moses himself pointed to. Jesus in his earthly ministry was identified as, as this prophet like Moses. And so early in John, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Jesus was this new Moses that Moses had predicted. Setting the word of God before the nations. And look how broadly he, he succeeded, or will succeed in this. The last phrase in verse 4, in the coastlands, wait for his law. In 
Isaiah's day, the coastlands referred to remote lands, uh, still primarily within the Mediterranean basin. Those Greek islands so far away from the land of Israel. Uh, the coastlands, those distant places, those furthest boundaries. Why, those are the places that, that Cyrus made tremble. Says in chapter uh, 41, the coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. But these same places wait on the word of the Lord's servant. It says, uh, wait has the idea of they put their hope in his revelation. They, they're staking their future, their eternity on what he reveals. And the word he reveals is the good news that God saves sinful people like me and like you. And through the death of this very servant, their sin could be paid for by trusting in his atoning death on the cross. Is the servant of the Lord going to succeed in his mission? Yes! And Isaiah describes the, the extent of his success. His gospel will be established even in the remotest places on earth. And for us, it's not just the Greek islands in the Aegean Sea. Because now we know of distant islands like Hawaii and the Solomon Islands who very early, the Solomon Islands in particular, were recipients of the ministry of John Patton Places like Iceland, where people are waiting for his word, for him to fulfill his gospel. This is the servant of the Lord. How's he going to carry out his mess, uh, mission? And this is what Isaiah describes to us. This, here's how he'll do it. This is his manner. This is how his speech will sound. Different than anyone you've heard. This is his mercy. And this is his strength. He will not fail. Well, I, I believe, I'm, I, of course, I'm, this is nothing prophetic or I, don't, I haven't received a word from God except this word from God right here. But I think the Lord might just interrupt your advent with his own behold that he throws in your life. That seems to be his way, doesn't it? Sometimes it's behold, the flu. It's unexpected, unannounced, but there it is. Or something different. Something or someone we didn't expect is about to barge in. About to elbow his way into your celebration of Advent. And I believe that someone is the servant of the Lord. Behold my servant. Look at this. Look at my servant Jesus. 
Look at his mission to declare my word to the world. Look at his manner, his speech, his mercy, his strength. There was a British pastor from a previous generation, and he once was He once said, I I never begin my work in the morning without thinking that perhaps he may interrupt my work and begin his own. Interrupt my work and begin his own. This, I believe, is what the Lord intends for you and me this Advent with these words. Behold my servant. Jesus, we invite you to interrupt us. Uh, we uh, are cautious about using these words, but we know that however you interrupt us, it will be done through your mercy and grace and not to harm us, but to heal and mend and conform us to the image of yourself. And Savior, I pray that we would be willing recipients of an interruption like Mary and like Joseph and like the shepherds. Interrupt us with this glimpse of the servant of the Lord. Let us uh, dwell on these great truths that you've shown us in verses 2 through 4. And let us respond with wonder and love and adoration and appreciation, Christ Jesus, for everything you are to us and how you displayed yourself in your earthly ministry. Uh, Do this work in us by your good spirit who dwells in us. We ask in your name. Amen.